You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so today we start a set of sermons that will last this fall through two chapters of Revelation. Uh, And just a quick side note, it's Revelation, right? There's no S at the end of that. It's the book of Revelation. So one day we'll preach the whole book, uh, but this fall we are covering two chapters. We're covering chapters 2 and 3 where Jesus writes to seven specific churches that are on the west coast of what is modern day Turkey. He's writing to seven churches there with words of commendation and words of correction. Now, why is it that we would spend a fall as a church family in these uh, two chapters of the Bible? And here's the simple answer to that. Why these two chapters right now in this season of our church's life? Uh, The simple answer is because these chapters give space to consider the most important question that a church can ask. The most important question. What is that question? Well, if you listen to the sort of church growth people, like it's church growth at all cost people, uh, their most important question for a church to ask is what do new people to your church think about the the church? Uh, That's going to be their most important question. And I think that is an important question. Every church ought to have that question in mind and every church ought to ask that question, but it's not the most important question in the life of a church. Uh, If you listen, not to church growth people, but to yourself, here is the tendency that you're going to have. You're going to have a tendency to ask this question and think it's the most important question. What do I think about the church? And that is an important question, but I'm just saying it's not the most important question. The most important question a church can consider is, what does Jesus think about our church? When he looks at the church, what what does he see? That's the most important question. And in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus writes to seven churches to answer the most important question. When I look at your church, what do I see? When I think about your church, what do I think? Now, in a very real sense, we are about to all do something illegal in America today, right? We are about to read the mail of these churches. Right? That, that's what we're all about to do. We're about to read their mail. Uh, these, these letters were written to them, but Jesus sanctions our reading of it. He says it's okay for us to read these letters because uh, yes, they were written to these seven churches, but they were also written for us, for us to consider, to help us, to give space for us to reflect upon how Jesus might see the church. And, And so when the shoe fits, we ought to put it on. When, when we're hearing commendation that Jesus gives these churches and it fits for us, then we should receive that commendation. And when we hear the correction that Jesus gives these churches, we ought to feel deep down in our bones that correction because it's written to them, but it's written for us. So in Revelation chapter 1, if you want to grab your Bible and just flip to Revelation 1 there. Uh, in Revelation 1, we meet John. It's the same John who uh, wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in your scriptures there. Uh, John has been exiled to uh, the island of Patmos. 
and he is exiled there. By the way, that's about 10 miles off the coast there of, of Western Turkey. And he was exiled there because he was faithfully preaching the good news of Jesus. So, so you've got a church under persecution. He is being persecuted. He has been exiled to this island. And then in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, John in exile says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So it's a, it's a, he's in a worship service. He, he's worshiping Jesus and he has a moment with the Lord here. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So Revelation is a letter, and we know from verse 10 there uh, that it's a circular letter. It's meant to be passed around to these seven churches. And then he says in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Now what happens right beyond verse 12 there is John describes Jesus with just amazing imagery. Eyes were flames of fire, a, a voice like the sound of rushing water uh, from his mouth is this uh, sword that was sharp, two-edged, uh, right? He's just describing Jesus. And, and what John saw in Jesus was so stunning that look at verse 17. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That is a person who has encountered the risen Jesus. And then look at the back half of verse 17. But he, Jesus, the, the risen Jesus, laid his right hand on me, John said. And this is what he said. Now we need to listen to what Jesus says to a persecuted, exiled man. To a persecuted church. All of these seven churches being written to in Revelation are churches that are living under the constant threat of persecution. Knowing that on any particular day, I might die for the sake of Jesus. And listen to what John, or what Jesus says to them. Jesus says, fear not. Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, that verse is showing us what Revelation was written for. This book finishes your Bible because it is meant to put steel into the spine of Jesus's church. That, that's what this letter is for. This is what it's aiming to do. It's letting us know how the story ends. That it's, it's not a mystery how this thing is going to end. One day, Jesus is coming back on his white horse. He's going to be slaying his enemies as he redeems his bride, the church. That's how the story ends. So Jesus is saying, church, it's going to be hard. There's going to be a lot of dark days between now and then. But church, fear not. Fear not. That, that's the purpose of Revelation. So the church can look at a crazy world around them and have no fear. Then we get to chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2 starts like this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, why is Ephesus the first of the seven churches addressed in Revelation? Why is that? Uh, well, there's a few reasons. 
One is that uh, of the seven churches, uh, by the way, these churches are all on a postal route. And on that postal route, if these seven churches, Ephesus is the first one on the route. So if you were in Patmos, exiled like John was, and you were to try to get a letter to these seven churches, and that letter leaves your island, and it's going out to these seven churches, the first church that's going to show up to is the church in Ephesus. It's the first one on that postal route. That's one reason. Uh, but probably the most important reason, or the more important reason, is that Ephesus was the most important of the cities uh, that these, you know, that, that are being addressed here. E Ephesus was the most important city in the Ro Roman province of Asia, which would essentially be modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was called the Gateway to Asia. Uh, Revelation, this book was written at the end of the first century, uh, in, in the kind of the mid-90s of that first century AD. And at the time, Ephesus was a huge city, somewhere between 250,000 to 300,000 people. That was a huge city uh, in its day. And uh, in that city, there was a theater that uh, I was just in a few months ago with a group of people from Stonegate. And it was amazing. It was the size of a modern-day basketball arena. Uh, so it could fit somewhere between 25 and 30,000 people. So you've got a huge city, a significant uh, city. And this city was full of spiritual people, much like our day. There were very few atheists in Ephesus, but there were a whole lot of idolaters. And their god of choice was the god Artemis. Uh, that's how the Greeks would uh, talk about their god, and the Romans would refer to her as Diana. And she was housed in a temple in Ephesus. And that temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So you're talking about a deeply religious group of people here in Ephesus. Now, think about where we see Ephesus in the scriptures. Uh, the first time it shows up is in Acts chapter, chapters 18 and 19. Uh, Paul is there in Ephesus. He spends two years faithfully laboring for Jesus in Ephesus, preaching the good news of Jesus. And eventually revival breaks out in the city. It's an amazing couple of chapters, Acts 18 and 19. Uh, a bunch of people meet Jesus. A church gets planted in Ephesus. And then just a few years later, Paul wrote the letter that we called Ephesians to the church in Ephesus to encourage and admonish uh, the church there in Ephesus. Then, a few years after that, Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Timothy to Timothy, his son in the faith who is pastoring the church uh, in Ephesus. And then later, uh, John uh, ended up taking over the pastoring of the church in Ephesus. And John wrote the Gospel of John from Ephesus. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John all from Ephesus. So you begin to see in the New Testament, a huge chunk of the New Testament was either written to Ephesus or from Ephesus. And then you get to Revelation chapter 2. The church in Ephesus makes its last appearance. And in this last appearance, Jesus gives us three things. He gives the church there some commendation. He gives them some correction. And he gives them a command. So commendation, correction, and the commands. We'll just take it in those parts. First, the commendation. Look at Revelation 2, verse 2. Jesus, looking at this church, says, I know your works. Now, we should just take a second to let that settle over us. Jesus sees his churches. And Jesus is not fooled by what is going on in any church. Jesus 
sees the church and he says to the church, I know your works. I can see it all. I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And here's what you've done, church in Ephesus. You, you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So Jesus is commending the church. He looks at the church and says, you're serious about doctrine. He commends them for that. You're serious about doctrine. Unlike so many 21st century American churches, they cared about theology. They cared about doctrine. They, they knew their Bibles. So much so that when false teachers came, they could test their teaching. And when necessary, they could look at false teachers and say, uh, yeah, no, that ain't going to work. That is heresy. That, that is false teaching. And Jesus commends them for this. Jesus wants churches who think right biblical thoughts, who have good doctrines, who, who are serious about doctrine. Jesus looks at that in them and says, yes, I love that about you, church in Ephesus. They're serious about doctrine. He goes on and he commends that they are serious about holiness. Look there again, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Their right doctrine translated into right living. They could not bear with evil. They're laboring, they're toiling. That is, that is working to the, to the point of sweat. Right? They're toiling for Jesus. They are producing good, genuine fruit for Jesus. Then you skip down to verse 6. Jesus says, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, most commentators agree that the Nicolaitans were the group saying, um, yes, by all means, you can have Jesus. Yes, we like Jesus. Take Jesus. Yes to Jesus. And you can have your sort of idol worship too. Uh, yes, you can have Jesus, and yes, you can have your sexual immorality too. Uh, this was the Nicolaitans. Uh, they're saying, essentially, um, yes, you can have Jesus, and you can have your idolatry. Those, those just go hand in hand. You, you can have both. And the church in Ephesus is looking at that group of people and saying, no, you cannot have both. No, you cannot have Jesus and your pet sins. They're saying, no, it does not work that way. I think it's true to say that this particular church, the church in Ephesus, was a safe place for sinners, but it was not a safe place for sin. They were serious about holiness, and Jesus commends them for being serious about holiness. Jesus wants his church to be serious about holiness. So he commends them. Well done, church in Ephesus. And then his commendation goes on. Not only are they serious about doctrine, are they serious about holiness, but they've also suffered well for Jesus' sake. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I mentioned this a moment ago, but all seven of these churches being addressed in Revelation, they were all enduring severe persecution. The church in Ephesus did not enjoy a privileged place in Ephesus. 
Ephesus was not an easy place to be a Christian. This city was not kind to Christians. Many Christians met their death in this very city. In Acts 19, when revival broke out in Ephesus, here is what immediately follows. Opposition. The city was not championing Christianity. They were not excited about uh, thoughts about Jesus, surrender to Jesus, uh, the preaching of Jesus. They were not excited about any of those things. But this church stayed faithful to Jesus. Even in the midst of opposition, they didn't give up. They didn't give in. They endured. And Jesus is looking at these people and commending them for that. Now, when I take a step back from th this commendation, Here's what it produces in me. It produces the feeling in me of like, man, these are my people. I love this church. They are serious about doctrine. I love churches that are serious about doctrine, who take their theology seriously. They're serious about holiness, the way that they're living. I love churches who are serious about that. They're serious about suffering. They are suffering well for Jesus, but they're not giving up. They're enduring whatever comes their way for Jesus' sake. I love churches like this. When I come across a church like that, if, if I were in the first century world and I came across this church in Ephesus, I'm asking the question, when's the next membership class? I am in on this church. I love this church. But then you get to verse 4. And here comes the correction. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Picture yourself reading Revelation 2 for the first time. When you read it for the first time, you are not expecting verse 4. You just heard Jesus affirm their doctrinal fidelity, their personal holiness, their faithful endurance, all these wonderful things, and then he lays out the problem. And here's the problem in the church in Ephesus. Jesus says, you have abandoned your love. He says, you're doing great things for me. You know true things about me. You're seeing me clearly. You're suffering for me. I mean, all of these amazing things. Jesus is looking at them and saying, listen, church in Ephesus, you have everything but the main thing. You have abandoned your love. Now, what are we supposed to learn from Revelation chapter 2, verse 4? What is the insight it gives us? Well, listen to Alexander Strzok comment on this verse. He says it this way. What we learn from Revelation 2, verse 4, and must never forget is that an individual or a church can teach sound doctrine. Be faithful to the gospel, be morally upright, and work hard, and yet be lacking love, and therefore be displeasing to Christ. Love can grow cold while outward religious performance still appears to be acceptable or even praiseworthy. Isn't that sobering to consider that? That we could keep up all the performance and yet at the same time lose our love. And notice here that Jesus speaks in terms of betrayal. You've abandoned your love. See, it's not just that they have, that they have lost their love. It's that they have left their first love. 
They have abandoned, they have betrayed Jesus. It's as if a husband looks at his wife and says, um, okay, listen, nothing's going to change you. Nothing's going to change. Uh, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be with the kids, for the kids. I'm going to make sure we're taken care of financially. I'm going to make sure uh, the house is taken care of. I'm going to make sure the lawn is mowed. I'm going to make sure all these things are happening. But I, I just want you to know, I just, I don't love you anymore. That's what's happening here. All the outward things are there, but they have lost their heart. So here's the question of the morning. This is really the question this text is presenting to us to wrestle through. Have you lost your first love? Have you left, abandoned your first love? To ask it another way, we could say it like this. Do you right now, this morning, have a deep hunger for Jesus? Do you love him? Like with everything, do you, do you, do you love him? This text is showing us that love is not static. It's not just that you love something today and you love it for, it's not how love works. It doesn't work that way. It's not static. It's dynamic. It's always fluctuating. If you've been married for more than five minutes, you know that, right? Love has a way of waxing and waning. One of the saddest things that I come across in ministry moments is being in a room with two people who at one point had such affection for one another that they would throw their lives into this mega commitment called marriage. And I'm looking at them now and they are at war with each other. That shows us love has a way of waxing and waning. Friends, today's love of Jesus is no guarantee against a cold heart tomorrow. We, we should feel that. Today's love is no guarantee against a cold heart tomorrow. Uh, maybe we could say it this way. Losing a deep, rich, vibrant love of Jesus is a real danger in your life. Do you feel that? It is a danger in my life. It's a danger in your life. It's a danger in the life of a church. This is a real danger. Losing a deep, rich, vibrant love of Jesus. There's a reason why the old hymn says our hearts are prone to wonder. They are. Our hearts are prone to stray from the Lord. And we just need to come to grips with, there is a war raging every day for your affections, my affections, for what I'm going to love most. This is why the scriptures tell us to keep ourselves in the love of God, to keep our hearts pointed toward Jesus, loving Jesus. There's a war raging for our affections. Years ago, I came across this ad I'll never forget. It, it was a picture of this bride-to-be, and the bride-to-be is looking down at her wedding dress. And it's the wedding dress sort of manufacturer company that's doing the ad. So just picture that bride-to-be. She's looking down at the wedding dress. And here was the caption uh, across the picture of that bride-to-be looking at her dress. Uh, the, the caption said, Love him, but love your dress more. Now, every person trying to follow Jesus is confronted with that lie about 4,000 times a day. Love Jesus, just love that thing a little bit more. 
L love Jesus all you want. Just love this thing a little bit more than Jesus. We are confronted with that lie all day, every day. There is a war raging for your affections, for your desire, for what it is that you're going to love most in your life. There is a war for that. Uh, Jesus alerts us to that in the parable of the sower. Do you remember that parable? He's sowing seed, and he's, that seed's landing on various uh, sort of uh, places, soils. And then there's that third soil. And Jesus tells us that the cares of this world, it's just the cares of this world. It's like, I've got, I've got a job. I, I'm going to figure out a way to uh, make enough money to, to make it. I'm going to be raising kids. I'm going to be uh, just all the stuff, just the cares of this world. The deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, just, just things in our life, just desires for things. Uh, this hobby, that hobby, this new trinket, the, just the desire for things. And Jesus says, those things, that the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, here's what they're like. They're like weeds or thorns that have a way of growing up in our heart, choking out our affections for Jesus. There is a war raging for your love, for your affections. This is why losing a deep, rich, vibrant love of Jesus is a real danger in your life cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, just, just the desire for other things chokes out a vibrant love of Jesus. A couple of decades ago, I came across this paragraph from John Piper in a book on fasting called The Hunger for God. And listen to these couple of sentences. He says, do you have a hunger for God? Ask yourself that question, do, do you? He says, if, if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestations of the glory of God, it's not because we have drunk deeply of God and are satisfied. No, that's not the issue. If we don't have strong desires for God, it is because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. For, for God. I wonder if that's you. Just spent enough time nibbling at the table of the world that you just stuffed yourself so full that there's no room for God left. Losing your love of Jesus is a real danger in your life. Or we could say it in a positive way. There's, there's nothing more important in your life than having a deep, abiding, flourishing love of Jesus. Nothing is more important than that. When Jesus boils down all 613 of the Old Testament laws, like here's everything I said to do in the Old Testament and I'm going to boil it down to one thing in Matthew 22. Here's the one thing. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's nothing more important than that. When is the last time your heart is cried out with the psalmist? Psalm 42, 1. As a deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you, O God. At Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, O God. I mean, can you even imagine talking to the Lord, praying to the Lord like that? God, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. 
This letter is really aimed to give us a moment of self-reflection. Have you left your first love? Do you have a deep abiding hunger for Jesus in your heart? Could you just take a moment to ask the Lord to show you that? Now the command. So what, what do we do if we have left our first love? What do we do if that's true? Well, Jesus gives us three commands here as a help to, to show us if this is true of us today. We've left our first love. We've abandoned our first love. He's saying, let, let me give you some help in how you can get your, your love restored, how you can come back home to the Lord. He first says, remember. Look at ver, uh, verse 5 there. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Do you remember the day that Jesus saved you? That he rescued you? Look back in, in your life. Do you remember those days when your heart was just burning with the love of Jesus? Do you remember those days in your life? I was just thinking last night about uh, me at 13 sitting in a service like this, and Jesus reaches down into my heart, and he rescued me. I was thinking about me at 21. I'm at this huge college conference, and uh, the Lord just intervened in my life in a really extraordinary way. And I just remember holding up my life to the Lord and saying, God, whatever you want, whenever you want it, my answer is yes, yes. And Jesus is encouraging us in this text to, to remember, uh, to look back and remember those moments and then to look at your heart now. What does your heart now look like in light of those moments? And if what you saw back then when you're remembering was a heart full of a love of Jesus, just burning hot for him. But it's now, when you look now, it's, it's cold in its affections for Jesus and its love of Jesus. Then this call to remember is an invitation to reflect. Where did my desire for Jesus derail? When did I, when did I sort of jump off the tracks? When, when did I lose, leave that first love? What caused that? What happened? When, when did that go down? It's a chance for you to do some self-reflection about that. When and how did that happen? Maybe for some of us, it was a painful experience in our life. Maybe it was the loss of someone we loved. Maybe it was a, a relationship that hurt us. Maybe it was church hurt that got us. Whatever those things are, it, maybe it's just the disappointments with life. It just is not going the way I thought it would go. And maybe it was a painful moment that derailed it. Maybe it was a pleasurable thing that derailed it. Maybe it was a good thing like marriage and kids and a career and a job and a this and a that that, that came in and seduced your heart. Just the deceitfulness of riches, the, the cares of this life, the, just the desire for other things crept in. And when it crept in, it crowded out a love of Jesus. You see this pattern over and over in the Old Testament. The, the worst thing that could happen to the people of God in the Old Testament is for the Lord to give them peace and prosperity. Uh, once they got peace and prosperity, it took them about 14 seconds to forget God. 
You just see it over and over again in the Old Testament. Just the desire for other things, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this life, just crowding out, choking out a love for Jesus. So maybe it's pleasurable things that have just seduced your heart away from the Lord. But Jesus says, I want you to remember. That's command one, Re remember. And then he says, repent. Look at verse five again. Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent. Repent. Friends, if you have left Jesus, if, if when you look at your heart, it has grown cold in its affections. If you have left Jesus, abandoned Jesus, it means that you're in love with someone or something else. That, that's the way the passage is framed, right? If you have left Jesus, it means you are in love with someone or something else. If your heart's grown cold to Jesus, it means your heart is now warm to someone or something else. So this is what it means to repent in this passage. Repentance in this passage means you break up with every other lover and you come back home to the Lord. That's repentance. I'm going to break up with everything that's trying to seduce me away from the Lord. I'm going to put it in pen. I'm going to write it in. So I am breaking up today and I am coming back home to Jesus. The one who loved me. The one who lived for me. The one who died for me. The one who rose from the dead on the third day for me. I'm coming back home to that Jesus today. That's repentance. Remember. And then he says, repent. It's, it's bringing your numb, cold, hard heart to Jesus and saying, Jesus, would you help me? Would you thaw my hard heart? Would you soften my heart? Would you, would you recreate that rich, deep, vibrant love of you in me? God, would you, would you do that? And I just wonder how many of us need that moment today. You need that moment in your life. It says, remember, repent, and then he says, redo. Look at verse 5 again. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. D do the works you did at first. Like, wh whatever you were doing to sustain that vibrant, rich love of Jesus, do those things again. Uh, part of what verse 5 is showing us is that keeping our hearts in the love of God requires cultivation. Think gardening. Uh, for a garden to grow well, fertilizer and water need to be worked in and weeds need to be worked out, pulled out of the garden. And in the same way, to keep the garden of your heart in love with Jesus, things need to be worked in and things need to be pulled out. There's things that we need to start doing or, or start doing again. And there's things that we need to stop doing. I, part of what we all need to learn is to ask a bigger set of questions than, is this thing that I'm doing sinful? That's a question, but we need to learn to ask a bigger set of questions than just, is this thing sinful? We need to learn to ask an even more important question. Does this thing right here, does it stir or does it steal my affections for Jesus? D does it stir or does it steal? Let's just take some examples. Uh, how about winding down with the TV on for the last hour of the day? Um, I, it's probably not sinful for most of us. It's probably not what's going on there. Uh, but is it helpful? Is it 
stirring or is it stealing my desires for Jesus? That's the question you ought to ask. Uh, let's take um, technology, your phone. Let's take social media. Um, I don't know about you, but my phone talks. And here's what it's constantly saying to me. Rodney, please come and check me. I don't know if your phone talks to you like that, but my phone talks to me like that all the time. And I typically talk back to it. I'll say something like, I did like 12 seconds ago. And it says back, I know it was 12 seconds ago, but you need to come do it again. It's amazing. It just has a voice that's always on. A few years ago, I was just sort of doing the mindless scrolling thing, and a friend of mine from across the room sent me a one-sentence uh, quote from John Piper. He sent me a text. I'm just scrolling. Then the text pops up. He's sitting across the room, and here was the text. Uh, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. Is keeping your social media feed current sinful? Probably not. But is checking it 94 times a day increasing our desire for Jesus? I doubt it. We need to learn to ask that set of questions. And then whatever is diminishing our desires for Jesus like a weed, we pull out of our life. But whatever is feeding our desire for Jesus, we put into our life. It's to be applied to our heart. Jesus says, go back and do the works you did at first. So could you just ask the, the Lord right now, what are those things in my life that need to be laid aside that need to stop? They're just stealing my affections for the Lord. And what are those things that need to be applied and added to my life? What fresh commitments need to be made today so, so that I can keep myself in the love of God? Remember, repent, and redo. And then I'm going to finish with this warning in verse 5. And we'll just end here. The stakes could not be higher in how we respond to this text. Uh, look again at verse 5. Remember, Jesus says, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, now here's the warning, if not, here is what I'm going to do, Jesus says. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. For Jesus to remove your lampstand is for Jesus to shut the doors of your church. In a moment of what must be heartbreaking discipline, Jesus lifts his hand of blessing off of a church. He removes his felt presence from the church. And that church, that lampstand that was once so vibrant and alive and doing so many wonderful things for Jesus, that, that, that church shrivels and dies. And sadly, friends, if you, if you were to go to Ephesus today, here is what you would find. Rather than a thriving church, you would find a barren gospel wasteland. That's what you would find. The stakes could not be higher. So would you pray with me? And I want to give you a moment to, to allow the Lord to press into you what would be helpful right now in this moment. Have you abandoned that first love? Left your love? Do you have a deep hunger for Jesus in your heart?
church, if we want to be known for anything, it, isn't it this? Isn't it this? That, that church loves Jesus. Church, we do not want to be the church who has everything but the main thing. So Jesus says, remember, compare your heart now to what it was then. Repent. Come back home to him. Break up with every other lover. Come back home to him today. That's what needs to happen for so many of us today. And then redo. What are those things that need to be freshly committed to? To sustain a love of Jesus in our life. Father, would you come now and talk to us about these things? Would you show us? Father, more than anything else in the world, we want to be known as a church who loves you, our God. And it's in the good name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.